William Cooper was born in England in 1731. We sang one of his hymns to open the service this morning, There is a Fountain. His dad was a pastor. He actually was a chaplain to King George II. His mother was descended from royalty. But unfortunately, his mother died in childbirth when William was only six years old, and he never, ever recovered from the loss. His dad wanted him to study law, so he went to the university. He was successful at that, but when it came to the final exam, what we would probably call the bar exam today, the idea of taking that was so overwhelming that he had a complete mental breakdown. He tried to commit suicide. His dad had him shut away in an insane asylum where he remained for 18 months. But during that time, he began to read the Bible, and he came across that great text in Romans 3, verses 24, 25, and so on. It talks about how Jesus gave his life to pay the price for our sins that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And it was at that point that he committed his life to Christ and became a believer. However, Throughout his life, he struggled with depression, with doubt about whether or not he was really acceptable to God. And so later in his life, as he was in one of those periods of despair that was such a common thing for him, he decided he was going to end it all. And so he went out, he hailed a cab, he told the cabbie to take him to the Thames River where he intended to drown himself. But as the cabbie was going off, a fog descended on London. As you know, London is foggy a lot. And this fog descended on London with such intensity that the cabbie got lost. Now, one story says that actually the cabbie realized the despair of his passenger and deliberately got lost. But whatever, however it happened, the cabbie didn't take him to the river. He wandered around London for a period of time. And finally, he stopped the cab, Cooper got out, and realized he was standing right in front of his own front door. And in that moment, he realized that God had sent the fog to keep him from killing himself, and that God cared for him even in the blackest moments of his life. And so it was that he wrote what became the final hymn that he wrote, a hymn that Many people know the first line of it, but they don't know the rest, unfortunately. And it goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet 
will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. When it comes to God, the fact is that many times it's difficult to understand what he is doing or why he's doing it. Truly, in many ways, while God has revealed himself here in his word, in many ways, God is inscrutable. For many Christians, that's very hard to accept. They don't like it that they don't understand the details of what God is doing in this world. My dad worked for the railroad most of his career. He was an electronics man for them. He installed and maintained their two-way radios, their closed-circuit TVs, and so on. And periodically, my dad would take us kids with him out to work. And he worked in this huge railroad yard in the little town of Avon, Indiana. And one of the interesting places in that railroad yard was a place called The Hump. Now, if you know anything about railroad yards, you know what that is. If you don't, let me tell you, The Hump is an artificial hill built there in the railroad yard. And what happens is the worker engines push railroad cars up one side of the hump, and there at the top, there's a man who pulls the pin, uncouples the cars, and the car rolls down the backside of the hump toward a myriad of tracks that are spread out beyond it. And as the car is rolling down the backside of the hump, there is a operator high up in a tower who throws a switch and guides that, tr that car onto a certain track. Now what's happening is that they're building trains. So as trains would come in from New York City and Philadelphia and Cleveland into Avon Yard, those cars were destined to a variety of destinations. Maybe it was Denver, maybe it was San Francisco or somewhere else. And as that car is being rolled down the hump, it is put on the track for the train that is going to the destination it's designed for. Now, when you're up in the tower, and I've been up in those towers, when you're up in the tower, you have this bird's eye view of everything. You see what's going on. And you see the... Um, controller, the operator, he's looking at a monitor, it's got a camera down on the track, it's reading all of the numbers of the cars that go by. He's got a manifest, he matches up the number on the manifest, and then he throws the switch that puts the car on a particular track where that car needs to go. Now many Christians like to think that that's how they should relate to God. That God should bring them up in the tower that he should show them exactly what he is doing in their lives and in this world. To show them what switches he is throwing at the moment. So that they can understand his plans and so that they can have a bird's eye view of all that's going on. But God doesn't do that. Rather than bring us up into the tower where everything is clear to us, we're more like those railroad cars rolling down the backside of the hump 
Not sure why we're being switched in a particular track, bumping up against the car ahead of us with little control or understanding. And just as that railroad car has to trust that operator high up in the tower to know exactly what needs to be done and the destination to which it should go, we have to trust in the wisdom and the knowledge of God in all the circumstances of our lives. The Bible has many places where it talks about the wisdom of God, a wisdom that far exceeds anything we've ever known or imagined. For example, Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Or Jeremiah 10.7, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And the verses we began with this morning, Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who should ever give to God that God should repay him? About the time we think we've got figured out, he surprises us. And if we look at the circumstances of our lives that we cannot control, and if we rebel against God because of them, we will destroy our faith. That's why I think Sinclair Ferguson said, unless you become familiar with the wisdom of God, you cannot make much real progress in the Christian life. Now, the Bible is riddled with examples of people who had to lean on the wisdom of God while not understanding their circumstances. So this morning, I'd like to tell you two stories. The first one is the dilemma of Job. Now, most of us know the story of Job if we've been in church much of any time. But in Job chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Well, that sounds like a pretty good spiritual resume to me. I mean, surely this is a man that God would honor and that God would treat well. But we know what happens, don't we? Satan shows up and God says to him, hey, have you seen my man Job? And Satan says, well, yeah, but you know he only serves you because you make him rich. You give him food and land and cattle and family. You take all that away, and he will curse you. So what does God say? You keep your grubby hands off my man Job. Well, that's what I want to hear him say. But it's not what he says, is it? He says, okay, go ahead. You can take it all away. And so in one day, Job loses all 10 of his children. I mean, as a parent, can you imagine? Can you imagine all your children dying in one day? All his wealth is stripped from him, and yet he refuses to curse God. 
So Satan shows up again to God, and God says, hey, have you seen Job? And Satan says, yeah, 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 skin for skin. Sure, you just let me touch his body. That'll change everything. And God says, okay, go ahead, just don't kill him. And so Satan attacks his body, and he is covered with sores, and he is in utter agony. And yet he still refuses to curse God. Even his wife, I'm sure out of great emotional pain, urges him to. But he tells her, look, should we receive good from God and not evil? Now, all this makes Job look like a hero, and and he is. But as time drags on, as his three friends show up, and they sit there in silence for seven days, which, by the way, was the best thing they did in the whole thing. But they show up, and, and they start to criticize him. They start to say, well, wait a minute, you know, there must be some sin in your life, Job. I mean, there has to be something you're hiding, you know, something that you're not telling anybody, a secret sin. And, and Job's like, I'm not perfect, but I, I can't think of any specific thing. And as time goes on, Job begins to struggle. You know, it's one thing to trust God in the moment. It's another thing when it drags on a long time. And as he defends himself against the accusations of his so-called friends, he struggles. And in chapter 23, we, we read this. He says, today also my complaint is bitter and my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. You know, he's no Pollyanna. He doesn't say, oh, this is no big deal. He, he's suffering. He knows it. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. And Job is saying, if I could just sit down and talk with God, if we could just have a meeting together, I'm sure we could straighten this all out. But there's no meeting. And God is silent. Now, we have those first two chapters of the book. So we know what's going on. We know that there's this cosmic battle between God and Satan going on. But Job doesn't know any of that. All he knows is the day-to-day suffering he's having to endure. Finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. And we think, oh, good, finally, God's going to explain it all to Job. But listen to what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, you know what you're talking about. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And rather than explaining to Job what was going on, he essentially challenges Job to trust him in the darkness. To remember that God, the creator, knows what he is doing at all times. And that even this experience in Job's life, as horrific as it was, 
was planned in the wisdom of God to bring glory to God and to draw Job closer to him, which is exactly what it did. Because when we finally get all the way through Job, and if you read through Job, it gets to be quite a slug as you go through it. And finally you get to that 42nd chapter, and Job has kind of gotten it. And he says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that I'd counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the thing is, is that Job says, you know, God, because of this experience, before the experience, it's like I'd heard of you, like somebody had told me about you. But now, because of what I've gone through, it's like I've seen you face to face. I really know more of who you are. And what we do not understand that's going on in our lives, God is often using for his great purposes. And we have to believe that his wisdom is greater than ours, even in the darkest moments of our lives. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're going through a very dark time. Maybe you got a report from the doctor that was pretty bad, pretty frightening. Or maybe you've got a financial crisis, a totally unexpected, that has hit you and your family. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Whatever it is, even in those things, we need to always remember that God in his wisdom is using it all for his glory and our good. God never wastes any experience of our life. And we can trust him. The second story I'd tell you this morning is the story of Habakkuk. Now, I think it was about four or four and a half years ago that Pastor Nate asked me to speak, and I spoke on particularly the third chapter of Habakkuk, so I'm sure you all remember that because you never forget a thing that any preacher ever says, and so I probably don't need to say too much at this point. But just in case you might need a reminder, let me just kind of fill in the highlights. Habakkuk is one of the prophets of God. He is one of the minor prophets, and all that means is his book is short compared to the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Habakkuk begins his little book by complaining to God. He says, God, my people Israel are living in sin, and I have been praying about that. Lord, won't you intervene and do something? But you don't seem to be listening. You don't seem to be doing anything in answer to my prayer, and Israel just keeps on sinning. And then God comes and answers Habakkuk and says, I know what's going on. I understand what's happening. Israel is living in sin. I'm aware of it, and I'm going to do something about it. When I do, it's going to make your hair stand on end. Because I'm going to use powerful, vicious Babylon to come down and punish Israel. Well, Habakkuk, at that point, objects. Well, I want an answer to my prayer, God, but that wasn't it. 
I mean, God, you've got to be kidding. How can you use Babylon that is more wicked to punish Israel that's less wicked? How does that fit with your holy character? And the entire, almost the entire second chapter of Habakkuk is God's response. And in a nutshell, he says, I know Babylon's wicked. Babylon's pride is going to ultimately bring about their destruction. But I'm going to use them before that. And right now, chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple Let all the earth keeps silence before him. And that includes you, Habakkuk. I know what I'm doing. And in chapter 3, we have Habakkuk's great prayer of confidence and trust in God as he declares that his faith is strong in God even if he doesn't understand what God is doing. Even though he understands it may mean the entire collapse of Israel's economic system, he will praise God and trust his wisdom And when everything around us is going to pieces, there is God acting in power and wisdom. He always knows what he is doing. And the fact that he does not choose to explain himself to us, just as he did not to Habakkuk, does not diminish in any way that the things in our lives and in this world are absolutely under his control, guided by his wisdom. But the greatest demonstration of God's wisdom is the cross of Christ. So take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The most radically, or the most radical, confusing demonstration of God's wisdom is the cross. It doesn't make any sense to the philosopher. It's called foolish by the world at large. But the death of Jesus on that cross is what brings life to all who believe. It doesn't make logical sense that God would send out of heaven his absolutely perfect son into this world to suffer and die on a cross for us who are wicked, vile people. 
And yet, that's exactly what he does. For in his divine wisdom, that is how he deals with our alienation from God. It's a design no one could invent. If all of us here could stay together for 10,000 years and pool all of our mental energies, we could never come up with a plan like this. Only God and his wisdom could do it. And that's worthy of a lot more attention, but I'll leave that to the Gospel of Mark and Pastor Nate. All these things teach us what wisdom is. Wisdom is the pursuit of the highest purpose and the greatest good. So God's wisdom is his pursuit of the highest goal, the glory of his name and the good of his people. And all that he does... He does in quest of that goal. And growing as a Christian means living by faith and trusting in the wisdom of God. God often, God seldom chooses to specifically explain his actions to us. Being the people of God doesn't make us part of the Trinity. It doesn't make us privy to the details of all his plans. That's why we live by faith, not explanations. Oh, we have the great explanation. God's in control and he's all wise. But the details we do not know and we trust him. In 1949, all the missionaries got kicked out of China. It was a horrific day in the history of world missions. The communists took over. The missionaries were out. There were about a million Chinese Christians in that vast population. And everyone thought that the expulsion of the missionaries would mean the collapse of the Chinese church. And for decades, we never heard anything. We, we got no information out of China. It was all locked down. But in the 1980s, information began to gradually come out of China. And what was discovered was, is that despite the expulsion of the missionaries and the persecution of the church, there were now some 50 plus million Christians in China. Seems like God does move in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Blind unbelief is sure to err. Scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He'll make it plain. For us, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And when everything around you is disintegrating, whether in your life or in this world, when it appears chaotic, and, you know, sometimes I make the mistake of listening to the news in the evening, and, you know, you just listen to it and you think, what? is happening. Remember, God's still on the throne. He's ruling over everything. He, in his wisdom, is moving everything toward the grand purpose and end that he has designed. But he's not only working in the big picture of the world and where he's taking that, but he's also working in the small picture of my life. 
making me into what he wants me to be, but I am not yet. And because he's all-powerful, nothing can stop him. And because he's all-wise, he'll achieve it perfectly. So never doubt in the dark what you knew in the light. God is too wise to make any mistakes. The only way to tap into the wisdom of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you have never put your faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and the hope of his resurrection, then you are bound up in the foolishness of this world. And you are missing the joy of knowing and trusting the all-wise God who alone is worthy of all our praise. The God who wants you to fulfill the purpose for which you were created, which is to worship and enjoy God forever. And I would encourage you today, embrace Jesus Christ and know the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom. You alone are God and there is no other. We thank you that when we look at our lives, many times we see things happening and like Job, we don't understand. Sometimes we look at our country or at the world like Habakkuk did his, and we think, what in the world's going on? But help us, those of us who know you by faith, help us to always remember that you are guiding everything by your wisdom to the great end that you've designed, and that we can trust you. We can trust you with what's happening in our lives. We can trust you what's happening in our world. And because we know this is true, we can worship you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you, our all-wise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.